0: The following message is from God's Word, taught during a time of corporate worship at Bridge Baptist Church. If you would like more information, feel free to contact us or look us up on the web at www.bridgebaptistchurch.com. We want to thank you for joining us during this time of study from God's Word. Take a moment in prayer now and ask God to open your mind and prepare your heart to hear His Word. He withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's bow for a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for your word. Father, we come to an interesting passage here in Matthew, and we just pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand what it is that you're doing here in the land of Naphtali and Zebulun and Galilee of the Gentiles. God, we, we ask you this morning that you would give us something of your heart for the nations, and that you would, you would just create in us a desire to reach out and to love others the way you love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On October fourteenth, 1987, Jessica was an 18-month-old toddler playing with a group of children at the home of her aunt who made money by babysitting children. This occurred in Midland, Texas, out in western Texas. It was a town that at that point in time had been caught in an economic recession, uh, everything was depressed and prices were down. And so families were trying to find alternative means of income, trying to scrape to get by. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of homes in those days had taken up babysitting and, and things of that nature. Baby Jessica's mother was a woman by the name of Reba McClure. She went by the nickname of Sissy. Uh, she married at the young age of 16 to a man by the name of Chip McClure and was, at this point in time, just 17 years old, a young mom. Sissy McClure, who helped her sister with the babysitting business at her home, heard the phone ringing that day. And so she left a group of kids playing in the backyard while she ran inside just to answer it right quick. When she came back, she found all the children they weren't playing, they were staring at a hole in the backyard that usually is covered by a flower pot. The flower pot was missing, and they were all staring down at this hole, which was an abandoned water shaft. She came over to see what they were all gazing at, looked down into the water shaft and didn't really see much of anything, looked up at her kids and didn't even realize that something was desperately wrong until she counted heads. One of the kids was missing, and in fact, it was her own daughter that had fallen into this abandoned water shaft. Within hours, the news had spread around the world. Baby Jessica, as she had come to be known, had fallen 22 feet below the surface in a well shaft that was about 18 inches wide. And she was trapped. There was really no way to get to her. As the call went out, the first responders on the scene that day, of course, were the Midland Police Department. Shortly thereafter, Midland Fire Department showed up. And before too long, drilling experts and excavation experts from all over the world were flying in. As the emergency call went out, dozens upon dozens of emergency professionals began to respond. At that point in time there was a relatively new phenomenon that had started. This is the rise of MTV and cable news network. And so this brand new fledgling cable network company had just started by the name of CNN. And so for the first time news traveled the globe. And everybody stood riveted to their television watching this event unfold. When we come to Matthew we see Jesus coming to John the Baptist. John the Baptist begins preaching and if you're not paying attention you might miss the significance of it. His sermon is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And people begin to flock to him in the exact same way that an emergency call goes out for help for this abandoned 18-month-old little girl trapped in a well. In The exact same way that we need help because this person is trapped What most people don't realize is that John the Baptist's message is similar to a 911 emergency call. He preaches that message and everybody begins to flock to him, including Jesus. In the exact same way that fire personnel join with police personnel, join with excavating experts, join with emergency drilling experts, all these people come together around this hole in the ground. Jesus joins with John the Baptist. I want you to turn with me real quick over to John chapter 3, verse 22. In our passage here, while you're flipping to John, in our passage here it says, now when he had heard that John had been arrested. And then some other stuff happens. So the question is, when he had heard. Now, he's been tempted for 40 days. He's had the devil come in and, you know, messing with him. And then we pick it up here in verse 12, and it says, when he heard that John had been arrested, then he makes the move to Capernaum, up to Galilee. The question is, well, what was he doing here at this time? What was he doing there with John the Baptist? We read over in John chapter 3, pick it up in verse 22. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples. Now, John, I'm sorry, Jesus gets baptized by John. And then he gets a group of disciples that start to follow him almost immediately thereafter. John baptized Jesus in verse 22 here in John chapter 3. It says, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them. And look at this. And he was baptizing. So Jesus is baptizing. John is baptizing. They're both preaching this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus joins with John. I mean, when you read the gospel account of Matthew, it sounds like, well, he comes, he gets baptized, he's then tempted by Satan, and then boom, he's up in Galilee doing his ministry. But there's actually a whole period of time here in which Jesus does not abandon John the Baptist. John is preaching repent, and Jesus comes And helps him do what he's doing. It says he's baptizing. Now he goes off a little ways. And it says John also was baptizing. And you see here at Aenean near Salim. Because water was plentiful there. They had lots of water. So it was easier to do some baptizing there. It says the people were coming and being baptized. For John. And notice that John. The writer the gospel of John. Notes that John the Baptist had not been arrested yet. So there was a period of time before John's arrested. In which Jesus was working alongside of John passage goes on it says a discussion arose between some of john's disciples and a jew over purification and they came to john they said to him rabbi he who is with you across the jordan to whom you bore witness look he is baptizing and everyone's going to him we have here the first denominational dispute i mean you've got the the jesus followers and then you've got the baptists okay and the baptists are like this isn't right all of our people are going over there we got to do something to stop this And notice the Baptist's response. He says in verse 27, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. All along, John knows that his ministry is to announce the coming of Jesus. All along, he knows this is going to come to an end. He is fully aware that his time is wrapping up. It's coming to an end. But in the meantime, him and Jesus, they're actually doing the exact same ministry. And some of the Baptist's disciples get upset. They're like, wait a second. He's actually stealing people away from you. So they're working together. They're slightly slightly separated by a geographical short space. They're in slightly different regions. But they're basically in the same area of Israel and they're doing all this together. And John's like, that's okay. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now look at verse 31. It says, He who comes from above all, he who uh, who is of the earth, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets the seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now when Jesus learned, chapter 4, verse 1, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and then he had to pass through Samaria. So, John the Baptist says, repent. Jesus, all the way up in Nazareth, hears that and comes and joins with the Baptist. He hears this call. Now, Jesus doesn't have anything that he needs to repent from. He's sinless. He's perfect. So you see this call. There's two elements to it. There's the first aspect, which is repent. Then there's the second aspect of it, which is for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is hearing the message of the kingdom of heaven. He's hearing the message of repentance. Now, he himself doesn't need to repent, but Jesus is the one that is going to usher in the kingdom of heaven. So he hears this call, and he knows, okay, it's my time. He gets up one morning, kisses his mom goodbye. His mom says, have a good day at work. He says, oh, I'm not going to the carpentry shop today. I've got other things I got to take care of. And then he goes from Nazareth down to Jerusalem, to the area right around Jerusalem there, to the Judean wilderness. He gets baptized. Now, wait a second. He doesn't need to be baptized in the same sense that you and I need to be baptized, but he gets baptized in order to be identified with us. And then just as soon as that happens, does he go back home, sit on his couch, eat Twinkies, and watch reruns of Oprah? (laughs) Nope. it's not what he does. Now, how many of that of us, is that what we do? You see, we hear it all the time. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm a believer. Yes, I've been baptized. And you know what? I don't really believe in organized religion. I don't really uh, see the need for going to church or in doing anything church-related. I think that I can just sit on my couch and eat Twinkies and watch reruns of Oprah and be perfectly spiritual. Now, every one of us in this room knows somebody who thinks that way. Some of us may have really good friends who think that way. And we all love Jesus. We revere him, and we respect him. And we want to be like him. And we see here from his example, his ministry has not started yet, but that doesn't mean he just sits on the sidelines. He comes to his cousin John, the Baptist, And strengthens him, assists him, participates in his ministry. There's a a passage, I I don't want you to flip there, we're going to throw this up on the screen. First Samuel 23. Jonathan and David, good friends. Jonathan's dad is King Saul. King Saul and David, not so good friends. They kind of have some issues with each other, you know, David's been anointed to become king, Saul already is king, that's awkward. But Jonathan and David, they're best friends. Now look at this. It says, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Orish. And look at this phrase. Strengthened his hand in God. Now, he is Saul's firstborn son. He is the heir to the throne, as long as Saul sits on the throne. And yet, he sees, okay, my father is not really honoring God. He knows that David is honoring God. And despite his family loyalties, and, and it would be perfectly fine. I mean, you'd expect somebody like Jonathan to say, you know, my dad's on this side, my best friend's on that side. Maybe I'll just sit this one out. You know, I'll just, you know, I'm not going to take sides. I'm just going to sit this one out. They got this little spat going on. They're trying to kill each other. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be involved in that. Okay, you'd expect that. But that's not what Jonathan does. He looks at the situation. He makes the determination. Who's working on God's side here? Who is not working on God's side? Who's working against God? And then he determines that he's going to go and strengthen the hand of David. Jonathan does not sit on the sidelines. He's not content to stay at home and say, I can just stay at home and do nothing. Spirituality, guys, is not about what you believe exclusively. Now, you know and I know that what you believe, that's where it all starts. Where your faith is, that's where it all starts. But true faith must compel you to step out and do things. If you are not having the type of faith that results in you stepping out and in this case, strengthening somebody's hand, or perhaps, as Jesus is going to do here in a few seconds, going and starting a ministry somewhere where people are, in lo- lo- who are lost and dark, then you haven't really understood the call of the kingdom. David is going to become king of Israel. David is about to step up and be placed in a position of leadership over God's people for their good, to bring them blessing, so that they can have a relationship with God, that God can bless them and do all those amazing things that He wants to do for His people. Jonathan says, I have a relationship with God. That means I care about the things that God cares about. Well, God cares about these people. And God has chosen David to be the leader of these people. So even though my own father is in the midst of this thing, ethically, morally, Jonathan cannot sit on the sidelines. If he has a heart for God and he loves the things that God loves, his faith in God, his heart for God must result in him making a really difficult choice. I'm not disputing for one second I mean, if it was my father, it would tear me apart inside. To see my father, and my dad is, you know, he, my dad is an, an unbeliever, he's a Christian, so I don't have this struggle, but some of you might. To see your father or your loved one or somebody that's really close to you standing in opposition to God. You're not free just to recuse yourself of the situation Regardless of your relationship, Jonathan here demonstrates that we've got to make a choice. We've got to pick a side. And there's really only one side worth picking. So he goes and he strengthens the hand of David. Jesus goes, no need to be baptized, never done anything wrong, he's never committed any sin. But because of his value and his love for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, he strengthens the hand of John the Baptist. Now as we're working our way through Matthew chapter 4 here it says when he heard so he's out there, he's working, he's laboring alongside the Baptist when he hears that the Baptist has been arrested he withdraws into Galilee. Why? It says in verse 13 leaving Nazareth he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun In the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them has the light dawned. Now there are 12 tribes of Israel. I need I need my map. I need my map. (laughs) There it is. Okay. So you have 12 tribes of Israel. Now I'm not going to walk you all the way through it. Ooh, that doesn't really show up very well. Can you guys see that from where you're at? Okay. Sorry, yeah, these screens don't always reflect it very well. It looks sharp on my computer. Up here, this is Naphtali, this area right here. This is Galilee, the Sea of Galilee right here. Naphtali, and right here is Zebulun. These regions right here comprise what is known as Galilee of the Gentiles. Up here in the northern end of the country. Down here, this is Judah, this is Jerusalem. I can't quite read the letters. Somewhere in here is Jerusalem, okay? Galilee, this is where they're at right now, down here. So Jesus, there's this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. It says that a light is going to dawn on Galilee. Now, who are these people? There's an interesting passage from 1 Kings chapter 9. Solomon comes to the throne after David, and he reigns for about 20 years. And he does two things in those 20 years. He builds the temple, and he builds the royal palace. It says here in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 10 to 13, it says at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram, now notice this, 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing here. Imagine that, you know, down in, uh, in, in Vancouver, they're wanting to build a really cool thing down there, you know, a brand new stadium, you know, or, or maybe they're trying to do a new thing for the Canucks, a brand new stadium for the Canucks plan. So they're bringing all these materials and all these different uh, items from all over the world. And so the premier says, you know what? I really appreciate it. China giving us all this timber. Not that we would really need lumber from China, but, you know, giving us all this timber and all this gold. I tell you what. You want Kamloops? Kamloops is a pretty good city. Why don't you just have Kamloops as my as my way of saying thanks for for uh, you know helping us build this brand new stadium for the Canucks to play in? Now that sounds nice, except if you're living in Kamloops, you're like, what? You're gonna give us away for the stadium to help for you know for the Canucks to play in? That's ridiculous. That's ludicrous. That's exactly what Solomon does here. Now we know, apart from Christ, Solomon is the wisest man that has ever lived. So there's something kind of going on here that we have to see. And it it comes on in the following verse. It says, When Hiram came of Tyre... So Hiram's like, yeah, thanks, man. 20 cities of Galilee? That's awesome. Let's go take a look. Hiram king king of Tyre came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him. They did not please him. He didn't like what he saw. Therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you are giving me, brother? So, they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Kabul, the land that nobody wants. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? It would be like, hey, take Kamloops. And they come, they take a look around, they're like, yeah, that's okay. Uh, uh, you know, just keep the gold, keep the lumber, keep the timber. I, I don't really need this city. It, you know, it, that's okay. You know, it, It's like, you know, what's going on here in this place? Why do people not want to have this region? I mean, Solomon, he's willing to trade them for the gold and the timber for building the palace and the temple. Tyre, king of Tyre comes down, hear him. Yeah, no, I don't want him either. Nobody really wants this place. To put it not too pointedly, I'm from Texas so I'm new to Canadian politics. It's kind of like that whole thing with Quebec. <laughs> Is it not? I mean, um, they don't really want to be a part of Canada, from what I gather. At least, at least let me, let me back up here. There's a faction of people within Quebec. Maybe not all, not all of Quebec, but there's a faction of people within Quebec who really don't want to be a part of Canada. And that tends to irk the rest of Canada, right? I mean, I'm sure some of you in here might have some strong feelings about this. You're like, yeah, well, fine. If you don't want to be a part of us, good riddance. We don't want you. I mean, that's kind of insulting to sit there and say, oh, we, we want to be our own people and we don't want to have anything to do with you. Maybe that's how the Jews looked at these people here in Galilee. I mean, the prophecy in Isaiah 9 comes right after another prophecy in Isaiah chapter 8 in which God says, you people living in Galilee, I'm going to wipe you off of the map because you are riddled with idolatry. You engage in the most perverse practices of worship, including child sacrifice. And I'm going to bring in the Assyrian army and they're going to attack you and they're going to wipe you off the map. So if God were making that same prophecy today, he'd say, you silly Quebecois, I can't stand you guys. You don't want to be a part of your brothers. You don't want to have anything to do with the rest of Canada. I'm going to bring in the Americans and they're going to attack you and they're just going to wipe you off the map. Sounds good to me, right? Some of us in this room are like, yeah, right on, that's awesome, way to go. Get rid of those Quebecois. We don't need them. But there's a problem. Because in Isaiah chapter 9, what he says is, the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali. For you and me, Quebec. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Quebec of France. The place that nobody wants, the place that nobody wants to touch. Nobody cares about Everybody's the, Kabul, the land that everybody's trying to get rid of and nobody really wants. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death... On them, a light has dawned. So if Jesus doesn't come here to Israel in the first century, let's just say he's coming to Canada here in the 21st century. What this prophecy would be saying is, Canada, I love you. Guess what? I'm going to go to the land that nobody wants. That's where I'm going to start my ministry. Now, if you're here... And you're like, ah, Quebec, let this convict you. The people you don't care for, the people you don't like, these are the people that God loves. These are the people God wants to reach with the good news. The land of Kabul, the land that nobody wants. God wants these people. You've got a 17-year-old mother. she got an 18-month-old toddler. And by all accounts, this family living in Midland, Texas, to use an expression from where I'm from, they are considered white trash. And yet, when this 18-month-old drops down this shaft, everybody comes to the rescue. Everybody. And everybody around the world starts hoping and praying for this little girl. Jesus comes. He strengthens the hand of the Baptist. The Baptist gets arrested. His ministry ends. It's time for Jesus to begin his ministry. And the place where he's going to go, the place where his light is going to dawn, the place where it's all going to start, is the land that nobody wants. What does that tell you about the heart of God? If you're here today, ask yourself this question. Is there somebody I know whom I really don't think needs to hear the gospel? I'd rather just be brutally honest with yourself. Is there somebody here that I would rather not see in heaven someday? I mean, I'm sure all of you can imagine you have those people from your past. Maybe there are people that you know right now that just grate on you, rub you the wrong way, you really avoid them, you don't have anything to do with them, you're okay if you don't ever tell them about Jesus. Maybe somebody else will tell them about Jesus. I don't have to be the one to do it. That's the exact perspective that these guys had towards Galilee in this day and age. You've got two cities built by Herod Antipas, You've got Tiberius, named for Caesar Tiberius, who's the reigning Caesar at this point in time, and you've got Sepphoris. These are cities that are way out on the... I need my map. <laughs> These are cities that are way out. You can't really see them. They're way out on the Mediterranean coast there. Now, Galilee is the breadbasket. They're the ones that can grow the food. This real fertile soil. It's really well, lots of nutrients in the soil. But guess what? Herod Antipas comes in and he says, mm, you guys aren't really good for nothing. Give me all your food. They're all going to come out here. He's built not one, but two cities full of bureaucrats and aristocrats. All of that stuff that's needed to run an empire, uh, at least this here, this country of Israel. And he goes in there and he says... You guys, all your food, I'm going to tax you heavily. I'm going to need the breadbasket of Galilee to basically bring all of your food over here to my two capital cities and feed my people. So that what you have happening in Galilee at this point in time is you got a people group who basically can barely feed themselves. What are normally agrarian, farmer type of people are having to pick up other professions such as fishing in the Sea of Galilee, which isn't something that they normally would do, but they have to do it now at this point in time because the bottom line is they don't have enough property in order to be able to support their families because Herod Antipas has taken it all. Then you've got the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Okay? These are also the upper class aristocrat kind of elite. They view all the world through this prism that if God, if you're being blessed and you've got lots of material things going on in your life, then God loves you. So God loves us because we're the aristocrats and we sit at the top of this whole food chain. We are the rulers in the temple. They look at the city of Galilee, a city which historically, because going back all the way to when Assyrian first invaded, this is a region that's engaged in basically the most vile, most ranked type of idolatry. Not only that, but King Solomon didn't even want him. Not only did King Solomon not even want him, but King Tyre didn't even want it. The king from Tyre, him, he didn't even want it. So they're looking at the city. They see Herod Antipas going there. He's like, yeah, I just want all your food. So they see people stuck in poverty who have a bad past. And guess what? The religious leaders, they look at Galilee through their prism that if you're blessed, God loves you. And if things are going bad and you're struggling economically and you're under economic hardship, then God doesn't love you. They look at Galilee and they say, you know what? God must not love those people. And yet all of them would have had Isaiah chapter 9 in their Bibles at this point in time. All of them should have known that the love of God goes everywhere to everyone regardless of what your economic status should be, regardless of what other people think of you. All of these prejudices that all the, you know, King Herod Antipas living there in his palaces in Tiberius and Sepphoris, the religious elite living in Jerusalem in the, with the temple and all the glory there, They all have this same passage, Galilee of the Gentiles, this region that is mixed blood. It's got half Jews, it's got half Gentiles, this region that is under economic depression that nobody cares about and nobody wants. Yet this is where the Messiah is going to go. These are the people that the Messiah loves. So if you have somebody in your life, maybe you've had a a bad go with them. Maybe you've gotten off on the wrong foot. And it's not to diminish who they are as people. They might be genuinely bad people. You might be justified in steering a clear path around them. I mean, Galilee of the Gentiles, these are people that have a history of the rankest form of idolatry. And God judges them for that. So you might have individuals in your life that are genuinely disturbing individuals. And yet, God loves them. He loves them. And you should love them too. Do you want to know why? All God-honoring emotions are broken-hearted emotions. What do you mean by that, Clay Camp? Doesn't the Bible talk about joy and happiness and all of this sort of stuff? Yes, it does. The root of all God-honoring emotions. The root of it all stems from a broken heart. If you truly have a relationship with God, if you truly have a relationship with Jesus, how it began was this. Somebody came to you, shared truth with you, and you began to realize that you had lived a life that was in opposition to God. The way that you treated people, certain things that you'd done. And you began to realize that God really is not pleased with you. Just because you're raised in Canada, a Christian nation, as opposed to an Islamic nation or an Arabic nation, doesn't mean that you and God are square. And so you come to a place where you realize me and God actually are at odds with each other. Now, the good news is that Jesus Christ dies on the cross for your sins. And you realize that, and you realize that there's forgiveness, and so you place your faith in what Jesus has done for you on the cross, you believe in Him, and then God promises to forgive you of all your sins, and now you're redeemed, you've been ransomed back, and you will live for eternity. So now you have incredible joy, but that joy is rooted in the first God-honoring emotion that you ever had was one of broken-hearted sorrow. Which is why I say all God-honoring emotions have at their root, the moment you begin to actually feel emotionally the right way in life, the first time you started having correct emotions was that first moment in which you were broken-hearted before God. You know what it's like to be trapped 22 feet down pinned in a well shaft with no hope. You know what it's like to be in darkness and despair. You know what it's like to be lost. And you have felt the thrill of salvation. If that is the beginning of God honoring emotions... Then you will also feel a need to see other people saved. You see, there's humility, and everybody who has a relationship with God starts off at a place of humility. Then there's arrogance and there's pride. Says, I'm good, I'm saved, it's all worked out for me, I could care less about everybody else. Now, I know that Christians sometimes slip backwards into inappropriate ways of thinking and feeling. But if you're there too long with that arrogant kind of disposition, which you say, I don't need to strengthen another man's hand, I don't need to do anything with the church, I don't need to do anything to take the gospel to the nations, I'm okay, I'm going to sit at home on my couch with my Twinkies and my reruns of Oprah. If that's you, and that can look like a lot of different things, like I'm going to spend all my time going out on three-day weekends camping. I'm going to spend all my time quadding and snowmobiling. It's all about me and my joy and getting my pleasure out of life. If that's your perspective, then I don't think you have fully understood what it is to be trapped in a well. Would any man in here or any woman in here walking down the street, supposing they came across a sewer drain that was uncovered and they heard somebody crying for help within it, which of you in here would just walk past and not try to do something for the person down that hole. I don't think there's anybody in here that would not try to do something and yet that's the spiritual reality that we face in Canada. Did you know the Quebecois are the largest lostest most unreached people group in North America not First Nations, Quebecois. These are the people who are the least churched per capita. These are the people dwelling in the darkest of places. These are the people who are the most desperate. And we, all of us, too often tend to look at them with disdain. When we should look at them with compassion. As the people who need God the most. And that applies to people you know in your own personal lives, people who may just live right down the street from you, people who may live in your home with you. They all need God. And if you just kind of turn a blind eye to that, it is no different, it is no different than turning a blind eye to an 18-month-old toddler trapped 20 feet, 22 feet down in a well, who's going to die down there unless you get to her? From God's perspective, you're guilty of the same crime. So Jesus goes to the place where nobody wants to go to save the people that nobody wants to see saved. And how does he do it? What's his methodology? Repent. Ah, <laughs> oh, that stings, doesn't it? Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> the example that Christ gives us is not go be friends with them first. The example that Christ gives us is not you know, go into their community and build them a nice recreational center and do nice things in the community and host a bunch of children's clubs and uh, you know, try to invite people out to you know, kids' club and, and make friends with their parents and then share the gospel with them. That is not the approach that Jesus takes. His approach is these people are trapped, they're desperate, they need God now, what's his approach? he preaches what does the word mean? it means he stands up and with his mouth he issues a proclamation and what does he say? repent that's pretty well in your face spiritually speaking they're trapped in a hole they don't see it because they're trapped in the hole, they've been in the hole their whole lives, they've never known anything but the hole but he comes and he confronts them with the bold truth, this is the truth Basically, there is a God, there is a kingdom. You've been living your whole life in complete rebellion against him. Change your mind. That's what he says. The Greek word for repent here is metanoeo. Noeo means mind or thinking or intellect. and Meta, the prefix on the front of that, basically means change or move. In other words, change your mind or move your thinking in a different direction. The way you've always looked at life, stop looking at it that way. So basically, Jesus' approach is when he goes up to this land of Galilee, the land of Kabul, the land nobody wants, goes in there he says, Hey, stop doing what you're doing. Stop thinking what you're thinking. Stop looking at the world the way you've always looked at the world. Don't do that anymore. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's imminent. That's his method for pulling these trapped people out of the hole. And that is the method that we see the Apostle Paul using. That's the method we see the Apostle Peter using. All throughout the book of Acts, we see these guys going in there, and we never once see, I mean, if you read the book of Acts, you never once see people going in and saying, okay, let's do a kids' club. Okay, let's do a block party. Okay, like we need to do some kind of good thing for the community here to get them on our side. Now, are there, is there anything wrong with that? No, absolutely not. We do all of those things here. But the temptation we face here at Bridge Baptist Church is that we'll hide behind all of those things. Well, we're a good church because we do all this good stuff for the community. Listen, you don't see them the way they really are. They are trapped down 22 feet. They are desperate. They don't even know how desperate they are. A block party isn't going to cut it. You're going to have to go down there and you're going to have to do what Jesus did, which is to tell them to change their mind and move their thinking in a different direction. And that's confrontational. It is. There's no way around it. This girl... Baby Jessica, Jessica McClure. She is trapped 22 feet down. October 22nd, 1987. She's been down there for three days. Rescue workers have drilled a parallel shaft going through 22 feet of rock granite. They've used a relatively new technology at the time, water, a water cutter, a water drill. They have made amazing progress. They've gotten all the way down. They've drilled a crossover shaft to get over to where she is. There's an EMT, a paramedic, down in the hole. A guy by the name of Robert O'Donnell. He's Irish. Happy Paddy, Happy St. Patrick's Day. He's an Irish fellow. Amazing thing about this fellow, he was born with no collarbones. He, he, for some odd reason, he genetically, he's just like that. He, just, he has no collarbones. And so he's able to touch his shoulders together. He's able to squeeze in these really, really, really tight spaces. And so he's down there, and he's in this really tight space, and It's almost like God has prepared this guy, Robert O'Donnell, for this moment. He's able to get into this hole where nobody else can get. And he's been down there. They've been down there now for 54 and a half hours, almost almost three straight days. They've lowered these electrodes all the way down the hole to this little girl, baby Jessica. Same kind of electrodes that they use on the astronauts to monitor their vital signs. And he's been down there. They've been at her side now for several hours. He's used... Jelly, petroleum. He's used giant forceps to try and wedge her out of there. He he just can't seem to get this little girl out. And the whole world is worried and praying because she's been down there for three straight days with no water and no food. And it's West Texas and it's hot. They've been monitoring these vital signs. They notice some things are starting to happen. Her breathing is slowing down. And her heartbeat is slowing down as well. And old Bob Donnelly, he's down there wiggling and prying and pushing and squirting jelly on her and trying to do everything he can to wiggle this girl out of there. He's been down there for several hours, choking on rock dust, can't see straight, breathing in all these weird fumes. And the radio message comes down and says, "O'Donnell, oh, you got to get her out, man. What's the holdup? As though I haven't been down here trying. I'm just laying down here 22 feet underground having a good time. We're having a picnic down here, you know. So he radios back and he's frustrated and he's coughing on the fumes and he's coughing on the dust and he says, half choking, half yelling, I'm doing everything I can. The Frustration is palpable. The doctor gets on the radio and he says, okay, it's okay, O'Donnell, we know you're working, you're doing your best, you know, trying to calm him down. He says, "Um, we're losing her. You've been down there for four hours now. If she doesn't come out soon, you're going to watch her die right in front of you. So he keeps telling, he keeps pulling, another 10, 20 minutes goes by. Rado's back. He's like, we're going to have to bring the water drill back down here. We're going to have to do something. I just can't get her out of this hole. She's just lodged in there too tight. The doctor gets on the radio. and says, we don't have time for that. He says, O'Donnell, you might have to break her in order to save her. That's all he said. You might have to break her in order to save her. Literally throwing forceps and jelly to the wind. O'Donnell takes one last look at baby Jessica. He can just see her there in the hole. It's dark. The emergency light doesn't quite show everything. There's there's all kinds of dust in the air, rock dust. He reaches in with one hand, he grabs something. He doesn't know what he grabs. He reaches in with the other hand, he grabs another part of her. He's not even sure what he's holding on to. She is lodged with her left leg dangling down the hole and her right leg is pushed up against the side of the 18-inch shaft to where her foot is right next to her face. Her right foot is right next to her face and her arms are all kind of twisted around. And he reaches in there. He doesn't even know what he's grabbing. And he just yanks for all he's worth. And she comes free. And about five minutes later, baby Jessica is lifted to the surface. She is bloodied. She is broken. A portion of her toe has been torn off. She is missing significant sections of skin from her arms and her legs. She has a significant gash on her forehead scraped all the way to her skull, all the way down her cheek, a scar that she still has to this day despite the fact that she's been broken in the process, she is saved. This is repentance. You've been living your whole life going after certain things, chasing after certain things. The natural result of that is you are lodged in it so tight. You realize you don't want to be here anymore. But now how do you get out of it? For God to save you, he's going to have to break you. And it's going to seem painful. There are things that you have that you're going to have to let go of. There are things that you have that you cherish that are not what God wants for you. And to have those things ripped away, it's going to hurt. They're so intertwined in who you are, and in the fabric of your very being, that as you let those things go, it's going to feel like chunks of your flesh are literally being ripped off of you. Now, baby Jesse came out of that hole that day with a grating and a scraping sound, in which a significant chunk of her flesh was left behind. But she saved. She saved. To this day, she's married. She's got three kids of her own. She's a healthy woman, no lasting damage, no memory of the event. Doesn't even recall being trapped 22 feet down. Her life is great. That's what God wants to do for you. That's what God wants to do for your neighbors and for the people you don't even really like all that much. That's what He wants to do for everyone. Jesus comes. He strengthens the hand of the Baptist because the kingdom is important. And then when the Baptist runs his course, he goes to the people that nobody wants to go to and he preaches what sounds painful to us. Repent. And it is painful. And I'm not diminishing the pain that is involved in repentance. Not at all. I know. I've been there. I've had to repent. I still have to repent of stuff. Every day of my life is a struggle in which I'm trying to say no to the things that kill me and yes to what God wants for me. And I know lots of you are there as well. You go through that same thing. And then we come to people who don't know Jesus at all. We're like, I don't want to say repent to this person. And I understand that because you know it's going to tear them apart. But if you want to see them saved, You want to see them go on to live the life that God really has for them. This word repent sounds an awful lot like what the doctor said to EMT, Robert O'Donnell. You might have to break her in order to save her. Bridge Baptist Church, I care deeply for the people that your neighbor's with. I care deeply for your family. I care deeply for your relatives doesn't matter how much I love the people in your life, I don't love them even remotely as much as what God does. Now, if we're going to see these people rescued, if we're going to see these people saved, we're going to have to take notes from the great Savior, the guy who knows his business better than anyone. You can look at Jesus as a professional deep hole excavator, a specialist in rescuing people. And when you look at him that way, he brings a message That hurts. But do you think that if there was a better way, that He, the wisest person who's ever lived, the Son of God, the God of the universe, do you think He would have taken a different approach if there was a better approach? Let that truth sink in. Now, do you want to see the people in your life saved? If not, I don't think you've heard the message of salvation yourself. There's an aspect in you which is still trapped down that hole. There's a a part of you which is still lodged deep down there. There's a part of you that still has to be broken. And it's this. The message of repentance is meant to go viral. In other words, Jesus hears the message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He hears that in in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. He hears John the Baptist. He strengthens the hand of John the Baptist. When John gets arrested, what does he do? Oh, I've got a better way of doing this. No. He himself preaches the same message. His disciples, Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching at Pentecost. Repent and be baptized. I mean, it's the same message over and over and over again. It's a message that's meant to go viral. If you want to get those people out of that hole that they're trapped in, you're going to have to preach repentance. There's no other Do you want to see him saved? And if you do, you might have to break him in order to save him. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you, Father, for saving us. We thank you, God, for pulling us out of that pit. God, I pray here this morning lord that you would give us the courage to go down into the wells where nobody wants to go to go down into the pits where nobody wants to be to interact with people that don't know you and who are desperately lost and hopelessly trapped and they can't get out they don't even know how lost and how trapped they are god i pray you give us the courage to be fearless to go those to go into those places to reach out to those people god i pray we would employ the method that you have prescribed God, I pray we're not arrogant. I pray that we're not mean-spirited when we ask people to reconsider changing their worldview, to reevaluate the way they think about you. God, I pray you would help us to strike the right tone of urgency and desperation, knowing that they are lost without you. Lord, I pray that you would show us how to share the message of repentance in love, and yet be faithful to you God, I pray you would help us to have a heart for the people and a desire to use the same method that you used. God, would you convict us today? We ask these things in Jesus' name. We hope that you've been challenged and encouraged by God during our time together in the scriptures. While it is our purpose to provide sound biblical teaching to all who are interested, our prayer is that you would be involved in a local church of your own because true spiritual growth cannot occur apart from the fellowship of the church. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time at Bridge Baptist Church.